0: Welcome to Godpod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, welcome to Godpod number 60, which is a milestone.
1: It's It's, it's our Diamond
0: Jubilee. Apparently it is our Diamond Jubilee, along with the Queen. Well, that's next year, but we we got there first.
1: Okay.
2: We do have to say this is just the Diamond Jubilee of the number of GodPods, not
1: our ages, obviously. (laughs) Although put together, they might just reach that. (laughs) (laughs) We are very young, obviously. (laughs) Exactly. We've got good radio faces.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, we are uh, here in our usual little place with. um, I was going to say surrounded by biscuits, but no, no, we are surrounded by biscuits. That's just what biscuits. it feels like because you've given them up for Lent, Graham. Exactly, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm suffering severe temptation this morning because the biscuits are lying there saying, come and eat me when I can't.
1: Well, if they want to be eaten, I'm sure I can oblige them.
0: Yeah, that's right, Michael would we'll do the same. But uh, we do have a special guest this morning, which is a great privilege for us, which is um, uh, Graham Kings, who is Bishop of Sherbourne. And um, Graham, do you want to tell us where, sh- where the, for, for listeners all over the world who don't know where Sherbourne is?
3: Sherburn is in Dorset, uh, and it's in the Diocese of Salisbury, so south southwest England.
0: Very good. And, uh, Graham, you've been a um, uh, vicar of a parish in north London, St Mary's Islington. You've been a missionary in Kenya. You've done all kinds of different things in your life, haven't you?
3: Yes. Uh, soon after I was ordained, I was a curate in Harleston in northwest London, multicultural. Then we went to Kenya for seven years, and I taught in a theological college, And then I taught in Cambridge Mission and World Christianity for nine years. And then in Islington, I was a vicar for for nine years.
0: And are you enjoying being a bishop? Uh, Yes, (laughs) I love
3: it, actually. It gives huge opportunities to speak to people right outside the church. Fantastic. Well, we uh, also have Jane. Hello. And we also have Michael. Indeed. Hello.
0: And uh, we also have some questions, which is... um, very usual for these events, and um, we've got various questions again that have come in from all over the um, the place, and uh, we've got three particular questions that we're going to try and work our way through uh, today, and um, they're focusing around the issue of um, of uh, religion, the nature of Christian faith, or its relationship to other faiths. And uh, it was great to have Graham here as someone who's lectured in Christian mission and uh, is very aware of some of the issues around relationships with other faiths as well. And um, uh, although this is going to get very confusing when we talk about Graham all the time here, because there are two of us. Base belt, exactly the same way as well, which gets very confusing indeed. Not
1: that that would really help on a radio program. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps
2: we should all just call the other Graham my lord for the other (laughs) other. I don't like calling Graham Tomlin my lord. (laughs) (laughs) That
0: would be confusing. It will go go to my head. (laughs) So anyway, the first question is from um, someone called Julie, who has uh, emailed in a very sort of short and, well, deceptively simple question. But it is the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Some people say they are the same God, but I really struggle to reconcile the character of the Islamic God with the character of the God of the Bible. So that's the question. When we talk about, uh, when, when Christians talk about God and when Muslims talk about God, uh, we might use different words. We use God, we use Allah. Uh, are we referring to the same being? Well, actually, are we talking about two different beings altogether? So, um... I don't know who wants to start with this one. Uh,
1: uh, yes, I think I mean the first point to make is a, is a kind of logical one that, that there can't be two only gods. <laughs> um, so, one of the things that uh, Christians and Muslims and Jews all share is belief that there is one God. Um, and in so far as one comes across somebody of Jewish belief or Muslim belief uh, who believes that, well, you want to affirm that and say so they are right to think that everything comes from the one source, and that that then makes. Um, harmony a possible thing within creation if everything comes from the same source and is in harmony with that source then everything is going to be in harmony with everything else Uh, and it gives a sense of of, uh, an undivided fabric of the universe which is really important for science really important for the way we live with one another and view one another Um, so I think whatever one wants to go on to say that's the kind of first thing to say that the belief in one God is, is common and we want to affirm that wherever we find it in others
0: it's become a particular issue in some parts of the world, hasn't it? Where Christians have wanted to use the word Allah for, for God in, in a Muslim context. They mm-hmm. want to, uh, there's some Bibles, I think it's in Malaysia, where Bibles have been produced using the word Allah for God, and that's caused quite a lot of controversy. Um, sometimes perhaps amongst other Christians, but also amongst Muslims as well, as to whether actually Christians are allowed to use the word Allah for God. Yes, the Arabic
3: word for God. And uh, Christians in in the ancient Near East and the Middle East have used that word um, before Islam uh, came up. Mm. Uh, So it it means God. Um, A key thing, I think, is when a Muslim um, becomes a Christian. Mm. Does he or she change her God or his God? And if you talk to... Um, Muslims who have become Christians, and over the centuries there have been thousands and thousands. Um, they don't, uh, but they see in God something something very new. Um, uh, the God is much closer, and that God is focused uh, in His Son. So it's not a question so much as as changing your God if you if you become a Christian, as seeing God in a, in a new way. Um, and similarly, when, when I was in Kenya, I talked to African traditional religionists, and they would worship the God of their fathers. And um, when they came to faith in Jesus, they didn't change their God, but they saw him in a new way, focused uh, in Jesus.
1: And the, the model we have in, in the Old Testament, of course, is, is of Jewish people believing in one God. That completely affirmed and continued in the New Testament. Um, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is revealed as also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there's not a sense that there's a new God here, uh, although some more extreme and heretical <laughs> ultimately d- d- deemed to be heretical groups began to think in those ways the gnostic heresy began to think of, of two different gods but but the scriptures uh new testament is quite clear it seems
3: to me that it's the same god but now known more fully and more and similarly between abraham and, and moses exodus 6 3 the god of abraham isaac and uh, jacob is revealed as yahweh so El Shaddai, um, the name Abraham used for God, God Almighty, is the same God as Yahweh. But then the difference is with Baal, Hmm. because Baal is not the same God. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge, you can see the debate in the Old Testament, and some thought he was.
0: Yeah, I guess that's right. And and yes, there are other... El Elyon is one of the other words for God that's used earlier on, which seems to have been a, a kind of a Jebusite God, which was then sort of incorporated into the same word was used for the, for, for Yahweh. Mm. And so there's something going on there in the Old Testament about that too. So the, the other aspect is looking at it from a, from a sort of Islamic point of view. Of course, the Quran talks about Jews and Christians as being people of the book. And uh, there is a, a kind of assumption in there that they are. There is a recognition that they are also, you know, that, Muslims believe that Christians and Jews are worshipping the same God, but they think deficiently. And Mm. so uh, from both sides there, there's a bit of convergence um, to say that actually we are talking about the same God. But I guess the question is, and probably this is the question uh, Julie's asking here, is that when you go beyond that to start describing this God, we do end up saying some quite different
3: things. Yes, and a key thing is, what was God doing um, before he made the universe? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I, I do question and answer session in primary schools and, uh, and six forms. And, uh, that sometimes comes up and it brings in the, the idea of the Trinity. And I say God was loving in a Christian viewpoint. God was loving before he made anything. And there was the father, the son, and the Holy spirit love circulated amongst them. One God, but three persons, um, in an, an Islamic view, you you can't say that because um there is not there isn't another there's nothing to love. To love. Yeah.
2: Yes. I suppose even in a from a Christian point of view, you can't really say that, can you? Because before time was invented there was no before. Yes. Um so yes. if if time is part of the created universe rather than part of ultimate reality, whatever mm. that is um but but yes I, it's an when you interesting question primary person, school kids you probably that's that's probably right. don't want to go <laughs> there but you can you can say <laughs> that,
1: that. that the, the the trinity enables christians to say that god is intrinsically loving in, indeed intrinsically mm. love in a way that perhaps other ways of viewing him yes would find it harder to articulate
2: and there is a kind of lazy way of saying that um all gods are the same, that mm. there's only one God and that means mm. that that God is ultimately the same and, and and to try and elide all the differences between um, the major world religions, which I think none of us, mm. uh, adherents of those religions would welcome. Mm. Um, because it's
0: usually a, a kind of, as you say, a lazy yeah. secularist yeah. sort of imposition upon faith to say, oh, well, you're all saying the same thing, really. And actually probably all the religions want to say, no, actually, no we're not saying the same thing
3: listen (laughs) it's often the figure of jesus christ that focuses that difference
0: yeah 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 Um, and i guess that's right because the um i mean of the question related to it is the whole thing of how um you know to what extent is the god of the old testament the same as the god of the new testament mm -hmm. because in one sense obviously we want to say yes there's a continuity there but we do know the god of the new testament in a you know, we, we use different language. For example, the New Testament doesn't, well, obviously it's not in Hebrew, so it doesn't have the same um, usage, but it doesn't use the word Yahweh, for example, which uh, for God we think of God as Lord. We think of him as later Christian theology, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We use different language. So there's a, there's a question there about, you know, in Christian worship, should we use the word Yahweh to address God, or is that something which is addressing? Is that, is that not, not appropriate for Christians?
3: Um, it, it's really very interesting, that, because Paul talks about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Mm. And the word Lord there uh, picks up kurios in the Greek translation mm. of mm. the Hebrew Scriptures, which also relates to what we're talking about.
1: Because yeah. it's often used of God, then. That. That's right, yes. it is. Yeah. And so
3: in Philippians 2, some of the highest Christology, in terms of uh, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. Um, that's extraordinary saying that that a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually yeah. the Lord. Mm. Uh, and
0: written only a couple of decades after Jesus right. was mm. yeah. was walking on, on and this,
3: uh, Palestine. And normally in the Roman Empire, it's Caesar is Lord. <laughs> and yep. it's quite a subversive mm. thing to mm. say Jesus is Lord. That yes, affects, it's a highly
2: political claim.
3: Isn't it, it really it? is, yeah. yes. Yep.
1: And you get an in, in extraordinary bit in, in 1 Corinthians 8 um, where Paul says... Yeah, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, earth, um, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live, mm-hmm. which is taking almost taking the kind of Jewish Shema, um, here, O Israel, the Lord your God is, is one, and putting Jesus in the centre of it. Now, that is both an affirmation of the monotheistic belief of, of the Old Testament, but a radical, radical re- revision and, and re- reinterpretation of it in the light of what we've seen and witnessed in the mm. life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and it's that kind of balance, isn't it, in our view of mm. other religions, mm. um, affirming mm. what we can.
3: Yeah, Paul is extraordinary. He echoes the Shema in Ephesians and other places as well as that and, mm-hmm. and in Romans, and it's almost natural for him to include Jesus in, yes. in the Shema. Mm-hmm. It took centuries to work that out, but it's there. Yeah. I
0: mean, the other passage that strikes right me about it is the, is the Acts 17 one where Paul is talking in Athens and and talks about how he wanders around and sees the objects of worship. And these are, of course, pagan. These are these are temples to pagan gods and statues to pagan gods. And he says, I found this altar with the inscription to an unknown god. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. And it seems there that he does seem to identify that the object of their searching, the object of their worship unknown to them was actually the god of the god that he was proclaiming Mm -hmm. so he's not doesn't seem to be saying um no 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 your gods are, 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 are you know your searching is completely illegitimate he's actually saying um i'm going to fill in the gaps for you i'm going to kind of proclaim to you the nature of the god that you are Searching for
2: but the dynamic of that is is interestingly different isn't it when um Paul at this point is a representative of a, of a tiny um not very successful mm. religion mm. um that has no um, official backing from anywhere and he's talking to people who are part of an age old um mm. pagan religion which mm. which represents what the empire believes by mm. and large uh, and so that dynamic of us of a of a tiny minority who believe themselves to to be Offering something mm. new and true to a, 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 a great majority is a different dynamic from the one that we're now in, isn't it? Where Christianity mm. has been mm. um, identified with with world powers um, uh, and which has had the power to impose its belief mm. um, on people, uh, and I think we forget that sometimes when we when we hear what Paul is saying in the New Testament. Mm. Um, that that Paul doesn't have the power to impose that on anybody.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What's interesting in that is that he quotes from their own scriptures, which is the um. Greek Greek poets. Yep. And so, a key way in sharing good news with people of other faiths is to know their scriptures, yeah. to study them, oh. to draw out. Um, Jesus is mentioned in the Quran uh,
1: I, I remember hearing a, a sermon in College Chapel when I was uh, an undergraduate from Norman Anderson, hmm. uh, Professor hmm. Norman Anderson, who was a lawyer and an expert in. Um, Uh, islamic law wasn't he school of oriental and african studies and he tried it was was a very very interesting attempt to say that the the concept of incarnation is not completely foreign to islamic thought Uh, now i'm not enough trained enough in these things to know whether it was right or not Mm. but that seems to me the sort of thing that is is what you're saying graham Mm. that we need to get to know these scriptures so well that Mm. we can Mm. work within them
2: and also the, the the assumption that we all share that scripture tells you things about how to relate to God and how we ought to live. I mean, that's something, um, a huge assumption that we share, the major mm. world religions, so so that the whole project of scriptural reasoning, mm. how you use scripture to, mm. to think about the world, to think about how we relate and so on, is something we share. Mm.
0: Mm. And that process, I guess, of reading each other's scriptures is a way of getting away from that slightly lazy, well, we're all saying the same thing, because actually when you read the scriptures, you, you realise the things that are similar and the things that are different mm. yes. and it enables you to be honest about those rather than trying to somehow squeeze everything into this sort of procrastinate bed of a secularized sort of religion or concept of religion that that um that no real religion actually recognizes
1: mm. yes there's um i've forgotten what i was going to say we can, <laughs> ed- we can <laughs> edit that bit it's, out. It, it's <laughs> interesting
3: in terms of the uniqueness of of christ um there was that wonderful television series just before christmas the nativity um mm-hmm. and uh just as jesus is born the uh the uh, woman helping her with with the birth the midwife says have you got a name and mary says yeah, he's going to be called jesus is the light of the world and she says of course he is <laughs> <laughs> and it's a wonderful line but for me yeah. it highlights um th- the midwife felt yes He's unique to you. To every mother, every, every child death. is unique yeah. to to every mother. Yeah. But I think Mary was saying, actually, mm. it's different. He's, he's the new. light of the whole world. Mm. Yeah. And um, some people think that Jesus is u- the unique savior for Christians, but I think biblically, mm. uh, we want to say he, he's the unique savior f- for everybody, for the yeah. whole world, um, and those those who respond in faith. It's very, very important. Mm. Yeah. And maybe sometimes
0: keeping a distinction, if you like, between Jesus and Christianity at that point is quite helpful because saying jesus is the truth as opposed to saying christianity is the truth i think we're a bit i think i'm a bit more comfortable saying the first than i am the second seems to be christianity is it's a religion that we have constructed around the person of jesus trying to sort of be faithful to him trying to understand what god has done in christ and uh and therefore and is a bit of a mixed bag if we're honest a lot of the time um and as you know, it's saying Christianity is the truth. that has often led to that sort of imperialistic type of mission that that imposes Christianity upon other parts of the of the world. Whereas she's saying Jesus is the truth is something slightly different to that. I think.
2: I think people have have made a, a huge jump, haven't they, from Jesus is the truth to Christians are right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, right. And uh, just the four of us in this room know that we're not right about <laughs> yes. many things. no, <laughs> three of us aren't, anyway. I'm volunteering to be one of those who's yeah, not, not so right about many things. Mike's right
3: is... always, unless he forgets what he's about to say. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's true. Need to ask my family, I think. <laughs> yeah,
0: <that's right. laughs> but it's, uh, I mean, it, it relates, I guess, to another question, a second question that came through from um, someone called Daniel in uh, Colorado. In fact which was, I guess, asking the other side to the, the question, which is that um, Daniel says this. My wife and I were recently provided, to, uh, sorry, asked to provide prayer and financial support for an evangelizing mission to a Muslim country in the Middle East. This country outlaws Christians from attempting to convert Muslims. The stated purpose of the mission is to present the gospel to unreached people groups. I'm greatly troubled at the notion of traditional evangelizing in Muslim countries, partly because of the political dimension of coming from a country that is at war with two Muslim nations, he's writing from the USA. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on Jesus' great commission. Is there a time and a place for Christians to abstain from making disciples of all nations? Could we pray for a nation without sending missionaries that are there to win converts? So um, there's the question. Are there times and places where it might be right to abstain from um, evangelistic missionary work
3: in that um, in places like that? So, I think we're always witnesses. Um, and we witness through who we are, um, what we do, as well as what we say. And so um, Christians have been in the ancient Near East and the, the Middle East for centuries. They're, they're there. And especially Orthodox Christians have witnessed under Islam for, for centuries. Their, their presence there, their worship there. Um, there is a time and a place for different methods. And handing out tracts in the bazaar, I don't think, is, is that helpful. Um, but praying, having... Um, being ready to answer answer questions is is absolutely crucial. Mm-hmm. So in your face evangelism in that context can be very dangerous and but but the presence of being there praying for people and answering questions is crucial.
2: Mm-hmm. I've seen um in some of my travels um for example in West Africa that that there were extremely good and productive relationships between Christians and Muslims in parts of West Africa where they worked together for the good of their country. And how and that balance has been increasingly disturbed by very um, gung ho kind of Christian evangelism. And I, so I think that the, the point that Graham is making about what about what evangelism, what is constituted by evangelism, is a really important one. Yeah. That um, that the the witness of of Christian presence must always be acceptable. Christians are everywhere and and are trying to follow our Lord wherever we are. Um, But that isn't often what people mean by evangelism nowadays, is
1: it? I I don't know if any of you have seen the um, (coughs) Human Planet series or any of those recently, but the the same kind of question came to me watching that when they showed um, an Amazonian tribe, um, previously unknown of, completely uncontacted, unfilmed. um, And they were very careful not to tell people where it was because they said the only chance of survival that they have is, is, is of if they're left alone, basically. Mm. Mm. What does one do Hmm. (laughs) about that? Mm. Uh, Because sometimes it is a matter of physical survival, that once they come into contact with Mm. Western people, they die from diseases that they they have no Mm. immunity against. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but but it's it's a tough question, I think.
0: It sounds like what we're saying is that it depends what kind of evangelism we're talking about.
1: But um, I also,
2: if I may, would like to pick up one other thing that that Graham Bishop Graham said, which is which is about the presence of Christians in all these countries already. We sort of assume that we from the West have to send real Christians there to tell people how to do it, as opposed to praying for supporting. Um, working with uh, responding to the requests of the Christians who are actually already in those countries.
3: Uh, like the
1: Armenian church in yeah. Iran, yeah. Iran and yeah. places. Yeah.
3: And that raises the issue of mission and unity, yeah. um, that if we just ignore the local Christians who are there and just do our own thing, then it looks like um, ecclesiastical capitalism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. But it
0: raises some quite interesting questions, I think, about... All styles of evangelism, it's its trying to work out what kind of evangelism is going to work in this particular context. And that's true for evangelism in Western countries in that are extremely <laughs> secular. <laughs> right, Exactly, yes. Um, <laughs> and Brompton Road, yeah. Exactly. Is it different in Dorset from central London? Is it, it is, different yeah. in sort of very secularized France or, mm. uh, you know, to, to South America or t- in different parts of the world? And I, we probably do need to get away from a sort of very monolithic, simplistic understanding of what evangelism is to a much more sort of subtle and, and varied view of different types and styles and approaches in evangelism. Some which are more appropriately in your face and, 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 and um, straight up there and some that are more, more, more guarded, more, more
3: um, subtle, more uh, um, indirect uh, as a way. Yeah, Kwame Bediako, great African theologian who who died a few years ago, um, he talks about um, did the missionaries actually bring Christ to Africa. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. you see there already, and and being unveiled mm. uh, is a, is a better way of looking at it. If if you imagine that missionaries actually bring Christ, then Christ becomes a portable God, mm. and he becomes a sort of idol who can be carried around. Christ isn't like that.
2: And presumably yeah. in, that implies that there are places where he isn't at exactly. the moment. Exactly,
3: yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. But um, if he is part of the single, the one God then yeah. he must be omnipresent. It goes exactly back to Christology that yeah. if he really is the Lord of the universe and has been from all eternity yeah. 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 then yes, he's everywhere. Mm-hmm. So the, the divinity and the universality and the uniqueness all link in together because mm-hmm. the one God is one mm-hmm. and unique and universal
0: mm. yeah it, it, i was struck by a, a word that the early christians often used to use for their relationship t- to the world around which was the word confession and i was reading a text the other day i can't remember who it was by i think it's by um Cyprian, that's right he was talking about confessors and confessing and i thought when i first read it i think I would be confessing your sins and i realized after a while he wasn't talking about that at all he was talking about confessing mm-hmm. which is testifying mm. um but it's got a, a good word in a way because you know you're, you're confessing, which is you, know, you confess Christ. That doesn't mean an aggressive in-your-face, but it's a willingness to be known as Christian, to be, um, to act as Christian, you know, to, to, to be Christian in a particular context. And that sort of we talk about the confessing church in in Germany during the the period of the Nazis, where again, sort of aggressive in-your-face evangelism wasn't wasn't going to work. But that's what you know, they worked out what Christian witness needed to uh, to be like in, in that context. So I suppose my, I think in, in answer to Daniel's question, you know, is there a time and a place for Christians to abstain from making disciples of all nations? I think I want to say, no, there isn't. But it depends how you do it.
3: Yes, that's right.
1: Uh, and particularly with this emphasis on respecting those who are there yeah. rather than shipping in, parachuting yeah. in.
3: Yes, and also St. Augustine wrote his amazing book and called it Confessions. And that's yeah. that's as that's, that's in right. a prayer a prayer addressed to God. So yeah. in, what's beautiful about that is you're listening in to a conversation between Augustine yeah. and, and God. Exactly. Um I mean again
0: there's another question, or at least a couple of questions that came in, which again relate to the same sort of topic and touch on issues we've we've spoken about already in terms of Christology and the uniqueness of Christ. And um one form of the question was um was this was Jesus born divine? In other words, Jesus being fully human and fully divine. Does that refer to his period of ministry of about three years and post-resurrection, or throughout his life? If it's for his whole life, why didn't he start teaching and doing miracles earlier? And what was his spirit? What was the spirit descending at the baptism by John about? Or was it that was it that when he became divine? Try um, start that again. If he became divine, what about the immaculate conception, the virgin birth, and everything else? So there's a question of you know was Jesus divine from birth and then of course that raises the question Well, what does that actually mean what does it mean to say that Jesus has a divine baby if he was what does that actually look like did he know everything was he omniscient as a child um was he omniscient as a uh, as an adult and then there's a, another question uh, the first one is from someone called peter this is someone f- uh, called adam and um adam uh taylor is asking the question about personality our personality uh, our personalities are shaped by our experiences in life. And uh, so what do we say about Jesus' personality? Was that shaped by his experience in life, the Jesus age 30? Is he different from the Jesus age three? And what does that mean for the divinity of Christ and so on? So,
2: What interesting questions. Mm.
3: Mm. And they're linked. Yeah. So he wants to kick off on this one? The interesting thing is whether you can become divine. Mm-hmm. Um almost by definition <laughs> yes that's right mm. uh and so i i think uh the son of god has always existed uh, from all eternity within the trinity um and so i don't think jesus was adopted as a son of god there's this heresy of adoptionism later um but i don't think that also means that he knew everything at the age of three mm. and uh, but also in when he grew up, he didn't know about helicopters. He didn't know about computers and things like that. He was a first-century Jew. He was fully human in his context, and yet he was also fully divine. Uh, my fav- one of my favourite verses is Luke two fifty-two. When he was twelve, comes back from Jerusalem having got lost, is obedient to his parents uh, in Nazareth, and it says he Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, in favour with God and people. So he grew in three in four areas in his mind, body and spirit and community. And that picks up how Samuel grew. Uh, We see that in 1 Samuel 1. Um, So Jesus at the age of 12 was growing in his mind and he was learning throughout his life. He actually learns, I think, from the Syrophoenician woman who challenges him. He learns from his context. He he learned his language Mm. from his mother. He received everything from his mother, milk and language and Mm. and, and everything.
1: And I think... The danger of adoptionism, as you say, this view that Jesus kind of became God, is presumably then he was singled out because of something that he'd achieved, he got particularly good, and therefore God said, okay, I'll take you up into myself, kind of thing. And then Christianity becomes a religion of um, dessert, of trying to prove yourself, of trying to be good enough, uh, and you get on that whole treadmill, which I think is pastorally and personally disastrous. Um, and exhausting, apart from anything else.
2: But it is—it's a very interesting sort of insight into God, isn't it? That we 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 assume, uh, as our questioner does, that that God needs to be busy the whole time, <laughs> you know, sorting things. Mm. Whereas this sense that God actually thinks it's worth living with us—that mm. that all those years that look like a waste, what it's Jesus, is what thirty oh. before he mm. explodes onto the public stage—all those years are simply being human um uh, how little value we give to that and yet how absolutely vital it is god thinks that's worth it god mm. thinks that's mm. important part of being with us is actually to experience that that growth it's very wasteful from our point of view isn't mm. it when all those years mm. god could have been jesus could have been sorting things out but apparently god just doesn't think it's wasteful
0: mm. Mm. there's an interesting text again in hebrews 5 where it talks about um jesus, during the days of Jesus' life on earth he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard, because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And um, I mean that, that phrase that although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffers. Suffered captures the the dynamic, doesn't it? Because it says you know he was always the son of God. Uh, it's not that he became the Son of God at a particular point. He always was from the very beginning, the Son. Just as we are all sons and daughters of our parents from the very beginning, of the moment we're, we're born. But Jesus also learned obedience through suffering. The suffering taught him um, things too, and that, and that you know, once made perfect. And I suppose that's about that point. I mean, related to what you were saying, Jane, that God does seem to to take His time over things. He He enables things to to grow and to develop. He he even creation itself is presented to us, not in complete form, perfect, yes, but not complete. It still has to grow, it still has to develop. We too are beings in progress. And we're not somehow trying to kind of, find some perfection that we had at the beginning. We're trying to grow and mature into the people that that God wants us to be. And that so there's there's that element of of growth and development that's built into creation. It's built into God's work amongst us so it's actually even built into the incarnation itself
1: mm. um, human beings have a much longer infancy childhood than most other creatures and i think the reason for that is because part of what makes us distinct and different from the animal world is our social ability uh that is actually shapes who we are um, and enables us to do things to be things that, that the animals can't aspire to Um, and it's interesting that Jesus therefore has this long childhood Mm. um, as every other human being Mm. does because he needs the interactions and the relationships as we do to forge who he is and does he have a personality yes he does I mean his personality (coughs) is going to be unique and different from anybody else's like ours is um and uh, pastry that's really important thing to say isn't
2: it that we that God does not actually require us to be completed
3: yes. and
2: perfect at every stage of our lives that that the the, the growing the learning is actually how god um, in christ chose to be um, and therefore that it's good it's right it's it's proper that we mm. should be growing and maturing and learning and making mistakes presumably mm.
3: I was struck by the South African version of the Mysteries, the Chester Mystery Mm -hmm. Cycle. It was at the Wilton Music Hall in the East End and then in the West End. And we had them as a guest service in November 2002 in Islington. And a key part of that at the beginning of the second act is Mary teaching her son um, to do a South African slap dance. And he can't get it. <laughs> it's very funny. And she tries and then he gets it. And uh so he does learn. Um and then it he calls his disciples through this slap dance and then they're not sure whether it's him on Easter Eve and in the upper room, suddenly he does that slap dance and they recognize him. Mm. I, I have
1: a, I have an icon of um Joseph teaching Jesus the Shema uh, yes. in the work in the carpentry workshop. Um, mm. Which is again a way of saying he learned he was like mm. us he actually had had to learn uh, the, way, the same way that we do through interaction through relationship because these are valuable. intrinsically it, valuable The idea ways.
0: that Jesus was omniscient as a two year old is a slightly odd idea and it it seems to kind of it means it's not he's not really human if no, he's if he's no, no, no. omniscient at that point.
2: And it's and, also again which we keep doing is getting an idea of God from somewhere else that's not the Bible yep. and trying to force it. Mm. Onto the biblical witness to what God is like. This uh, this idea that you know Jesus did his sort of apprenticeship, um, having our uh, serving people and having, and then went off to be king, mm. Mm. is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that element that we see in Jesus of service, mm. of presence. Mm. That that's that's the nature of God. That is what it is to be yeah.
0: king. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, exactly. learning obedience. Yeah, which is the funny thing you say say about a king. Yeah. And, and I suppose that, that, I mean, the word perfect there. I guess is an interesting one, isn't it? Because sometimes I mean, that word. I and mean, this is the greek word teleos which can mean perfect but it can mean complete and an end exactly it's, yeah. it's reached the end and so by saying that he was made perfect uh you know once made perfect doesn't mean that he was imperfect before it means that he was incomplete and the two is quite different because imperfect can mean flawed it can mean something wrong with you but that's different from incomplete it's it means yeah. something that hasn't yet you know into that a bulb buried in the ground is not Imperfect. It's just not yet hasn't hasn't grown
3: into the flower it, it it is intended to be. I think we can get we can draw a doctrine of humanity out of that little verse Luke 2, fifty two. So if Jesus as a child grew in wisdom and stature in favour with God and people, then we are mind, body, and spirit in community. And often the secular world will say, "Well, we're mind and body," and Christians will say, "Well, we're mind, body, and spirit." But actually, it's the community side which is which is so important too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, just the one little question that was hidden in there in the, the original question that was there was the, the one about the baptism of Jesus and what was actually happening then if uh, the Spirit comes upon Jesus. And I suppose in traditional adoptionist understandings of Christology, that's the point at which God sends his Spirit, he becomes the divine Son of God, he's adopted as God's Son at that point. Now, if that's not happening, what is happening at the baptism? What is Jesus different after the baptism than he was before? filled with the spirit more after than he was before.
1: I think what's happening there is that it is what has always happened for all eternity within the life of the Trinity. You get the father pointing out the son, expressing love for him, affirming him. You get the son submitting himself joyfully and gladly to the father. You get the spirit coming upon Jesus and, and pointing him out. Uh, mm. and, and you see mutual glorification, mm. uh, that is what god is he is mutual glorification and we are made in his image we are made for mutual glorification one with another um and so often we we fail to do that we we knock and and carp and criticize rather than mutually affirm and glorify
0: mm. so is it a is it a sort of an instance in time of something eternal is that what you saying a kind of think, depiction think, of, of, of the nature of God in a particular like, moment?
3: I think it might be the vocation. He senses his mm-hmm. vocation at that moment. And now is the time. Um, and it, often the, the coming again of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit came upon him um, again. Um, and vocation and the coming of the Spirit often link together. People, you know, people get filled with the Spirit and they think, oh, what does God want me to do?
1: Um, and of course you're my son the son of god was another way of talking about the messiah this is a messianic vocation that he's taking upon himself and realize and then he goes off into the wilderness and hears the voice if you're the son of god he has to work out what it means Mm. Mm. what is it to be the messiah what kind of messiah am i going to be Mm. Mm. Um, and realizes that it's not the kind of oppressive impress impressive one Mm. Uh, it's one of of service and of sacrifice.
2: But Luke in particular makes it clear that the whole of the incarnation is the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So it's not that this is Jesus' yeah. first acquaintance with the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit at yeah.
0: baptism. That's right, the Spirit comes upon yeah. Mary to, to, yeah. to, to, to make
2: the to, whole to... thing possible. Exactly, yeah. Yeah.
0: that's right. Yeah. 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 And so, it, so maybe there is a, I think that's what you say, Graham, about vocation. This is Jesus setting out in his public ministry, being endowed with the Spirit for that. It doesn't mean that he was not filled with the Spirit before, but he is sort of commissioned, as it were. And there's a sense in which you can see that happening in human life as, as well, that you know, when you enter into a new form of ministry or a new vocation, you pray for the Spirit to come upon you. It's what we do in the Anglican Church when we ordain people. And, um,
3: it's very, you as a bishop will know all about like this. It's very powerful <laughs> for me because three key services are ordination and confirmation and and licensing of it, because that's what I do amongst others. And all three, um, other people prepare them for me. Mm. And um, I come in and link them back through the centuries and throughout the worldwide church. And all three are related to the Holy Spirit. It's Mm. very, very moving. Mm. Um, And what I encourage people to think about Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, that if you are in Christ and if you believe in him you are, then that's about you as well. Mm -hmm. It's not just about Jesus over there. It's about you. And and
1: I think all too often we have an either or view of the Spirit. You either have him or you don't kind of thing. Mm. And actually, this is suggesting Jesus had the Spirit, then he received Mm. the Spirit in a new way for a particular task. And the Spirit kind of comes upon you in different stages appropriate Mm. to where you are and who you are and what you're called to do and to be.
0: Very good. Well, thank you very much to all of you who sent in questions. Again, uh, apology, as we always do, to those who sent in questions that we didn't get to answer, but um, we only yeah, have time for... Like, like the three that we
1: just uh, <laughs> <spent Yeah. to laughs> been talking about. If we've we've our apologies best.
0: to those questions we well, think exactly. we've answered. <laughs> inadequate answers that we give. But anyway, um, uh, Graham, it's been great to have you with us today. i really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming up from Sherbourne, Dorset. <laughs> and um, we... Uh, uh, Yeah, we're very grateful to you for making, um, becoming part of God Pod number 60, what what was it again? Diamond Jubilee. Diamond Jubilee, yes, exactly, that's right, yeah.
1: Yeah. I imagine there will be street parties all over (laughs) the world. The world, world, yes. yes. Yes.
0: Yes. if they can get past health and safety. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, anyway, um, uh, nice to see you, Jane.
2: Thank you, and you.
0: And also, Michael. Very
3: good, thank you.
0: And we will be back again soon with uh, Gold Pod 61. But until then, goodbye.
3: It's goodbye from him, and it's goodbye from me. For <laughs> <laughs> your
2: That was Godpod, a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.